Hello, welcome back to One Day You'll Thank Me. My name is Dr. Tara Egan and I am your host and I am here with my co-host Anna. Hey everyone. Thanks so much for being here today. We have a fantastic guest. His name is Ed Wynn and he is an author. And the book that we're going to be discussing today is called We the People, Restoring Civility, Sanity, and Unifying Solutions to U.S. Politics. And Ed is a very talented guest in that while he's currently retired, he has a lot of credentials that give him authority when it comes to making recommendations about how to best support parents in their quest to have kids be really educated, informed voters in our society. So he is a graduate from the University of Illinois. He has a bachelor's degree in political science. He was a Truman Presidential Scholar, and he was granted that in 1980. He also has a law degree from Georgetown University, and he's the parent of four adult children. So thank you, Ed, so much for being with us today. Here, it's my pleasure to be on the podcast uh, this afternoon. Thanks so much. Well, we're going to start off, and I have to tell you, I've been so excited about this conversation because we take politics very seriously in our home. Oh, yes. Yeah, Anna can attest to that. So we've been following the news avidly. And right now, I do want to put it in context for our listeners because sometimes there's a bit of delay between when we record an episode and when it's actually released to our listeners. So right now, it's currently October 6th. So, so far during our week, President Trump has been released from the hospital after a diagnosis of COVID. We are about 18 days out from Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing away. And um, there's a lot of conversation around those two topics. And I know as a parent, I have to figure out a way of how to keep my kids educated and do it in a way that's really respectful of the different opinions out there and sort of keeps that communication and discourse open. And it's difficult, you know, because everybody has opinions. That's for sure. And particularly now that everyone has opinions, but one of the issues, and I think it's something parents have to really uh, be aware of and, and help themselves and their children address, is that the opinions are so divisive sometimes. And I think that's something we all need to be aware of both in terms of improving that, because that's a worthy goal for all of us, but also from the standpoint of knowing that it's there and what are some good strategies to address that. Absolutely. Before we get started on some of the strategies, I wanted to comment on the initial part, the beginning portion of your book, I thought was an excellent resource to really gain some understanding about how our government works. And in the book, you talk about some factors that determine candidates as far as who's going to run for office. You talked about the role of both federal government, you know, each of the branches of government, as well as looking at the role of more local and state governments. And you talked about the role of the Supreme Court. And I, you know, as much as I'd like to think like, oh, I know all this, you know, I'm an educated American, I'm really invested in the process. There was some things that really piqued my interest, because I was like, I don't know that I really understood the nuances, for example, of the Electoral College. And one of the things you had said was that 75% of electoral votes are locked in prior to the election even occurring. So I want you to tell us about that because it's a struggle, you know, as I hear that percentage and I'm like, oh my goodness, like it's my vote really going to matter, especially in a state where, because I live in South Carolina, where there's one party that has such a dominant voice. And that's really, I think, the surprise that many of us have is that because of the system we have with the Electoral College, that those states that are, as you said, Tara, predominantly Democratic or predominantly Republican, their voters are going to vote in a majority for that party. And therefore, all of the state's electoral votes in those states are going to go to the candidate of that party in the presidential election. So that's why there's so much emphasis put on the battleground states, those states that are more politically diverse, and that therefore their electoral votes are the ones that are up for grabs, and that will be determinative of the election. 
Yeah, so that makes for a stressful election night for me because I tell my kids that election <laughs> night is what? What do Your I? Super Bowl is my Super Bowl. Yeah. So I expect the kids to treat it like the, the way I'm supposed to care about the Super Bowl. I expect them to give mm-hmm. the appropriate reverence to election night in our home. Yeah, it's, it's a chaotic night. <laughs> <laughs> It, it is. I think it may even be more chaotic than uh, the Super Bowl at times, because sometimes those games are are relatively uneventful because we know the outcome. But I would say election night, it's like Super Bowl in our house, too. Uh, sometimes I think it drives my wife a little bit nuts because of the <laughs> intensity with which I watch it. But I think understanding what you're watching for. So one of the things that I think is really important, and sometimes we've gotten off base on this in terms of what we need to focus on as we go through the election, because there's so much, uh, Mm -hmm. so much for parents, so much for kids, is we focus on the national polling. So every time I hear a national poll, like who is leading in the national poll, and many companies still do this, I cringe because that's one thing that absolutely doesn't matter. But more importantly than not mattering, it also can be misleading because someone can lead in the national polls and you can get a false sense of security that that individual may win when in fact, because the president is elected not based on the popular vote, but on the electoral vote, that may not be the end result. So would you say that that's what happened in the last election? I think that happened. I think there were many things that happened. A lot of it stemmed around not understanding the importance of the electoral vote and the states that really mattered. Again, I'm going to be non-political about this and just state the facts. So one of the things that was surprising to me is that the Clinton campaign did not campaign in Wisconsin. And Wisconsin turned out to be a key battleground state. And I think that may have been a miss. I think people looked at the national polls and they believed that one candidate, I think in that case, Clinton had a comfortable lead, but in fact, that did not. And then I think even as to polling, and I do talk about this in the book, you have to be very careful about that. You have to look at the way the questions are designed. You have to look at more detailed information. And so when I look at polls, I do look at that. And I think that's really important. And there's some tools that I think we can use to help with that. One that I use, it's a website, I believe it's 270 to win. Mm -hmm. They list all the polls out, but they also give them a grade based on how they have designed and conducted that poll and their prior success in predicting the elections. So I filter that. So I only look at polls that are rated A or B because I don't want to look at things that are rated C and D. And so I think that's something important that all of us can look at two, to make sure that we understand it. If you want to get more detailed, and for those of you that really find this topic interesting, I look at the crosstabs. And I think particularly in this election, and by crosstabs, I mean, look at the set of questions that were asked, where they divide the demographics up by different factors. So this election, because of the COVID crisis that we're going through right now, and because of mail-in voting, I look at the crosstabs by is the person going to vote mail-in and how likely are they to vote? And so you can look at that and start to see, does one candidate have a set of voters who may be more mail-in, and those may present issues about how those are calculated, or a set of voters that is either more or less likely to win? And that can start to give you indications of where you see potential weaknesses in the numbers that are reported in the headline for that particular poll. So I think, you know, if you want to get to that level, but I think generally, first of all, remember, we don't elect the president based on the popular vote. We elect the president based on the electoral college. And in that system, only the battleground states matter on election day. Wow. Okay. That's going to really help me cue into what to hyperventilate over (laughs) on election night. How do you become a person who's polled? You know, when they do a national poll, how do they decide who they're polling? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it also shows where there can be some wiggle room in these polls. So people are selected for polls based on statistical 
analysis that the pollsters do, and they typically design it around likely voters uh, are just voters. Likely voters is the way you want to always go because then it's giving you a more representative sample of the vote that occurs. And so if you look at a poll and you see LV next to it, that generally stands for likely voters. So you know that's a poll that's going to sample people probably more representative with those that actually will vote. How do um, they know if they're going to vote? They ask you that question. How likely are you to vote? Okay. So they will do some screening generally to get the right poll sample. And you don't sign up for a poll, they call you. One of the issues with that is traditionally these polls have been conducted over the phone. Uh, we have a couple issues with that, and I talk about that in the book. The first one is people are less willing in many cases or demographically different groups may be less willing to participate in a poll if they in fact are called. And so that can have a tendency to skew the poll um, result. The second thing is a lot of these polls are conducted because we vote geographically based on geography. Well, even if they use a cell phone, that cell phone number that we have may no longer be associated with the geography in which we're we reside or are going to vote. So you have to be very careful about that. And sometimes people, while we all know which state we live in, they may not understand which congressional district they live in. And so it can skew those polls if that geography doesn't match up. The final thing, and this is something I don't discuss in the book, but is important to know as well. Many people think that polling is based on, I interview 100 people, 60 say yes and 40 say no. Therefore, I report that the candidate with 60 has 60% support. That's not how it works. They are weighted demographically. They're weighted based on education, sex, age, all those different things so that they get what they perceive to be a sample that is representative of the total that is likely voters or the like. And so one of the errors that can occur in polling and based on studies that were done in on the 2016 election is that some of the pollsters got the weighting wrong. One of the areas that some people say they got the weighting wrong is around education level so that they undersampled people that did not have a college education. And that as a result, that led to some things in the polls being off. Here's what I say about polling. No need to stress or worry about it. Only look at the state polls in the battleground states. Don't look at the national polls and don't put too much weight in them. They can vary and look at them more over trends of time with the same pollster because presumably they're going to be using the same criteria and doing the polls. And you're really looking for how does that moving? And most important of all, don't let any polling result make you think that you don't need to go to the polls and vote. You need to go to the polls and vote. Even if there's one election where you think the result is almost certain, there are many other elections that you should vote for. And those election results may not be known. And as we've seen, a very small number of votes can make a big difference in the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. I'm obviously on some sort of list as a person to be polled. But whenever they I'm polled, they only ask me about educationally related topics. Like I have a doctorate. So they'll ask me about my career. Am I content with it? Am I engaged in a career that's related to my degree? Am I earning the amount of money that feels commensurate to the degree I have? How do I oh, feel wow. about student loans? But if I'm like, well, let me tell you about, you know, my beliefs about this or that, like, they don't care about that. It's a very scripted question and answer. There's not room for like nuanced discussion. Does that make Correct. sense? It does. And they're just looking for a statistical result or a statistical outcome. They're not looking for the flavor behind that. There are the campaigns do use something to do that focus groups, but they'll bring in a very small number of people and ask their opinions about this and try to get that done. That's where there's more qualitative answers that feed into the process, but that's obviously not as predominant as the quantitative polls that we see all the time in the news. Yeah, I haven't been invited to the qualitative one. So I haven't either. So yeah. okay, well, that makes me feel better. Hey, this will be a good time for us to take a little break. We'll be right back. Hey, listeners, did you know that only about 50% of registered voters actually cast their vote? 
I vote in every election. And I'm so jealous that I'm not old enough to vote yet. Election day is Tuesday, November 3rd. It's almost here. You probably already know which candidates you support. If you vote in person, make sure to wear your mask. And tell your friends to vote too. Voting is your right, but you have to exercise it. So go out there and vote. So let's talk a little bit, a term that I always want kids to know more about and is very relevant here where I live, right on the border of North Carolina, is the term gerrymandering. So if you could explain to our audience about what that is and what the impact is on our society. Absolutely. So gerrymandering is all about drawing the lines for congressional districts, our state representative districts, to favor the political party that predominates. So typically we think this, let's say there were a state with 10 million residents and they had 10 districts assigned to them so that each would have about a million people in it. You would think they take the state and come up with fairly similar sized and looking geographic boundaries for those 10 districts, either squares or rectangles or circles. You unfortunately would be wrong. They are designed based on where they see voting patterns so that they can get more of the 10 districts to have a majority of voters of the same party as the party in power. So in our 10 district example, let's say that there were 50-50 Republicans and Democrats uh, voters in the state, but that the Democrats had a predominance. They would design these so that they had proportionally more Democrats in a minority of districts to concentrate them in a fewer total number of districts, but would put a majority of their voters or just a bare majority of their voters or a little bit more in the remaining six so that at the end of the day, the result came out that even though they had just half of the voters, they might have 60% or six of the 10 districts. And so if you look at the uh, way these are constructed, and I, I have a diagram in the book of how some of these are, you can see just how outrageous they are. Now, some of the reasons that people justify this, because you think, how does this happen? Um, they say it helps to enfranchise minority voters, and that would be wrong. In fact, the data and research shows exactly the opposite. It is always used to give more power to the predominant party and not use to enfranchise anyone. And so you need to remember that. Now, here's a really important and timely thing about this. How do we help with other things related to district designations to prevent enfranchisement? There's something we can all do right now if we haven't already done it. And that's respond to the census because the census determines how many districts are going to be in each state and that can make sure that each state has the appropriate number of districts to reflect its actual population, not just the percent of the population that responds to the census. Please, 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 and we have until the end of the month, I believe there's some court challenges going on on this, but please, please, please respond to the census. It means so many things, not only how our representation is decided based on districting, but also on federal funding and other matters for each of the states. No one is going to get in trouble for responding to a census. It's not going to trigger you know, immigration issues or anything else like that. All those things are protected. You can do it very easily. There are people that will come by to your home and take your information if you're not able to access a computer. But this is one of the things we can all do as citizens right now to help make sure that we have the right representation and that we have a more democratic government. And that is respond to the census, please. Right. But I do know there is a lot of fear around that as far as if you're a person who isn't documented, you know, has maybe a criminal record. There's variables that compel people to act based on their fears. And I do see on the Internet and on social media, like there is a lot of talk about that as being an issue and a barrier to people responding to the census as a white, married, middle class, educated woman. For me, 
there doesn't seem to be a lot of risks. You know, I don't have any fear-based decision-making to make, but I, I'm certainly a lot of other people do. They do. And I think what I would emphasize on that, the attempts to instill that fear are based on people saying stuff that's not true. But I can assure your listeners that there should be no concern or fear about responding to the census. There are many uh, laws and other things that protect that from occurring. But I do understand and I'm sympathetic to when people continually hear, and I'm concerned that we may start, we are hearing this about the election as well, that by exercising your rights as an American, you have reason to fear. I, I, it's not true, but it's unfortunate that people are fear mongers in that way. Yeah, that kind of speaks to some of the conspiracy theories that we see peppering the internet right now in all sorts of things, whether it's, you know, about vaccinations, whether it's about the census, whether it's about COVID and potential treatments or the veracity of using masks. Like there's so much out there that can contradict. And as we know, with social media in particular, there tends to be content that's fed to us based on our pre-existing beliefs. So if we already have a belief about a certain conspiracy, and then, you know, the algorithm reinforces that by sending sources our way that validate that or peck away at our, our fears. And then we have a peer group or the people that we're connecting with on social media, and they're validating it, and they might be seeing the same things. And then for the people who aren't seeing that content, it all seems very ridiculous. And it can cause a lot of disconnect and disengagement as far as conversation. Absolutely. And I think there are some easy things that we can all do. It's sometimes tough because as, as you've described these articles, Tara, and we see them all the time, is that they're designed to stir up emotion. So I have a few easy things that I think we can all do to help us do that. And I have a couple sources and I'll share those. The first is when you read what purports to be a news article and it stirs up emotions and the stronger it stirs up those emotions, it's less likely to be true. So yes, yeah, some things are going to set off emotions because we have tragic events that occur in our country. But when you see that it is going in an extreme way to stir up those emotions, then you probably can guess that you need to check that out and make sure it's really true. The second thing is I look for, and this is just really simple, and it also is probably a good grammar lesson, which is the more a news article contains nouns and verbs, and the less it contains adjectives and adverbs, especially strong adjectives and adverbs, it's more likely to be true. So when I see adjectives and adverbs in very emotional language, I tend to say, wait a minute, I, this is something I probably need to check out. When it's reporting the facts uh, and using nouns and verbs, I'm more likely to believe that. And there are also other tools run by relatively independent organizations. One I like is allsides.com, which lists all of the different media and then ranks them on their potential biases. And it takes input from us. And so I think that that's, well, it's not perfect. Nothing is going to be perfect. It does provide a good guide to, for at least you to question that. Uh, and I think we have to be particularly careful. And this is on all parts of the spectrum, the national 24 hour news media. And I'm speaking specifically about, and I'll name them because we all know them anyway, MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News. Here's my point about this. And it's a point I make in the book. These are supposed to be news organizations. News is not supposed to have a point of view. But yet, all of us, if you took a poll of 100 people on the street, 99, if not 100, could tell you the political bias of each of those three along the political spectrum. So I asked the question, how could that be real news? The other thing that you look at is what is their technique for presenting the news? It's almost always one of two things, not exclusively, but almost a host that states his or her opinion about news events of the day. That's not news, that's opinion. Or they have a panel of generally three individuals, 
two of which line up on the preferred side and one on the other, and they basically bash the one on the non-preferred side or sometimes even make fun of that person. And so it's a biased point of view. So when I look at news, I tend to look at, are they reporting facts, not opinion? And I think it's easy, and I talk in the book about how you can distinguish facts from opinions. And then secondly, I look to see, do they consider the other side? Any news story that focuses just on the one side and doesn't consider it from the other side, I think is going to be naturally biased. And that's something I tend to do just even in my personal life outside of politics. If somebody does something and I kind of think, well, that's really bad, I try to put myself in their position and say, why would they do that? I'm trying to understand. Sometimes I'll even ask them, help me understand why you think that or why you said that. Because you may be missing something completely. You may not be getting the whole side of the story. And that's the point of the news. We should be getting all the story. Yeah, that's very relatable to me. One of the things I do as a therapist is I work with parents who are going through a high conflict divorce. And there's times where, you know, I'm hearing both sides, right? I'm hearing mom versus dad talk about their perspective of the other person's parenting or the interpretation of the other person's behavior. And of course, the language can be so emotionally provoking, you know, and one of the words you used often in the book is dehumanizing. In parents who are in these high conflict situations, they can forget that this is a person, you know, that they made the decision to have a child with, they both agree they love this child and that they were working together as a team. And now they're on opposite teams. And it feels like nothing that other parent is doing is coming from a place of common sense, love, respect. And so when my role as the parent coach who's helping them collaborate as co-parents, like one of the first things I do is counsel them to tone down that language. And like, we do need to be objective. And, you know, when it comes to reporting what the other person is doing, to use really just like extreme language, highly negative language, like that's almost always the first step is like, let's tone that down so that we can actually begin to look at what the child's progress is or where their concerns are so that we can focus on, well, what are we going to do next? Like, what's the next step for this child to provide for them as parents? And so some of the things that I read about in your book, like I could relate back to so much of my work in working with families, you know, some of the things about taking accountability, dehumanization, it's almost like a supremacy thing of like, my idea, and my opinions are more important than yours, and you don't have the right to have your perspective be heard. And, you know, whether it's co parenting, whether it's parent or child, whether it's sibling rivalry, like I see those same themes played out in the family system. And then, of course, we see it all the time as society in our political world. I think that's exactly right. It happens anytime something I think is highly charged emotionally. And, you know, when emotions run high, I think people get into those things. It's really interesting. You can even tell it yourself. If someone approaches you and says, tell me, Ed, what do you think about this? I'm generally relaxed. I'll express my viewpoint, particularly if I feel I'm in a safe environment to be able to do that. But if they come to me and say, that was the stupidest thing you ever said. I can't believe that. What happens, you know, just physiologically, you get on guard, you tense up, you want to be defensive. And so one of the things that I think we need to do, not just in politics, but in any situation where the stakes are emotionally high, is kind of let that go keep our emotions in check. Sometimes, and this actually happened on one of the other podcasts I did, the host was joking and made a, we were talking about this issue and he called me a name. And I took a second and then responded in an appropriate way. And I said, I want to go back to that. You notice I paused. And the reason why I did that, and I I urge other people to do that, is when you feel, and you know it, when you're getting emotionally charged like that, take a pause, two or three seconds, just recognize that that's happening, recognize you're getting triggered, and just let it go and go back to the facts and put in the tools that your brain knows that you should be doing to make that conversation much more productive and civil. And so I think that's good advice for any highly charged conversation, but particularly those around politics. Yeah, I think there is a a place there to acknowledge sort of privilege, you know, in that in a conversation, you as an educated white male are always fundamentally at a disadvantage, as am I. And if I'm in a discussion with somebody who might be from 
a, a population that doesn't have the same privileges that I do, like the fact that they might experience, like, like you said, that word triggered and have a higher emotional reaction, like they're coming from such a different perspective than I am. It's going to be easier for me as the privileged person to tap into my coping because I've had a lifetime of that privilege to sort of bolster my ability to to stay calm and recognize like I am safe and this person's perspective really isn't going to impact my life. So I, I mean, I have sympathy for for individuals who are are in a position where they consistently feel like their voice isn't heard. And it was something you noted in the book is that sometimes and I'm not sure how I feel about this, but you said that there's times when political correctness can be a barrier to people being able to share their voice. So can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. I agree with what you said. We have to try to be as kind to people as we can and understand things from their perspective. They don't have our same perspective. Let me talk about political correctness. I think we have to be careful, and this is true with other labels, that we don't turn that into something more than maybe what it would be appropriate to be. So if we use political correctness to say, I don't want to hear that, if we use it to say, I want to use that to silence you, that's where it kind of has gone off the deep end. I think sometimes using those shortcuts gets us in a bad way, and we need to think a little bit deeper than that. So I think we should always be able to have respectful conversations with one another even if the other person or persons express viewpoints that are different from our own. We shouldn't be in a situation to say merely because someone expresses an opinion that we might not agree with, that therefore that is somehow harmful to us. As long as they do it respectfully. You know, we shouldn't tolerate name calling. We shouldn't tolerate verbal violence or physical violence. Not at all. But we should be able to listen and we need to have different techniques. If we've got them and the other person doesn't, no worries, just show it. Because, you know, if somebody makes a statement like that, that's, that we think is offensive, you know, you can be curious. Why do you feel that way? Help me understand. I think anyone in that situation, those kind of things take the edge off that conversation. And I would do that and I try to do that with people that do get emotionally charged, either because of the experiences they've had, and I may not fully know that, but I have to understand that people have different experiences. And so when they get in that situation, I try to diffuse it and to be more concerned about understanding where they're coming from and why, and let them talk. I know what I think. Let's let them talk. I probably will learn something from that. At the best, it's going to get us to a place where we can have a civil, respectful discussion. And even at the worst, it's probably going to leave us in a better place than we started the conversation with. So I think those are some techniques, particularly in political conversations that we have. And so you mentioned where we are in time right now. So we had the presidential debate, mm -hmm. uh, which was truly unfortunate. And, and I will say I'm embarrassed as an American to have that be represented. And it's always tough in those situations. But I think we always have to remain on the high ground. And there are some techniques you can use in that type of situation to try to diffuse it. Now you can't always do it. It's not always going to work, but we really should try to stay away from name calling and that very personal attack on others. Politics are important, uh, but they're not so important that we need to attack each other personally and degrade and dehumanize each other. And we have to remember that, that those type of things are never appropriate and we need to stay away from that. And, and that's something that I think we should all remember. Yeah, I'd like to ask Anna's perception here because I know that, you know, one of the primary ways that you connect with your peers, especially during COVID, now that you're a remote learner, is social media. And mm -hmm. I know that you've seen politically charged material like on Instagram and things like that. Do you yeah. feel like your peer group talks about politics? Do they do it calmly? Do they just avoid it? Uh, not very calmly, I'll say that. They have, like, one opinion, and they stick to it really, really, like, strongly. Mm -hmm. And they'll, like, post these, like, really upsetting and things that just don't seem true because they're so, like, over the top. 
they'll at a friend, do like some emojis, like the clapping emoji, and be mm-hmm. like, this is so great. Like, everybody should listen to what they're saying. So then they try to pull yeah. certain like-minded individuals into and- that. Exactly, Opinion. and so then th- it's almost like they're trying to get into a fight because then they know that there are some people who are against those, and they like purposefully want to hurt them. And be like, see how wrong you are, mm-hmm. or like post something that looks really untrue. At least from my perspective, it doesn't look believable. Yeah, but we also talk a lot in our house <laughs> about what could be believable versus yeah. what isn't. And sometimes you had shared Anna a story about a, a classmate who had posted something that was really factually incorrect. And then I Mm -hmm. said, oh, well, you know, that surprises me because their parent is a master's level professional. And you were like, oh, she shared it from her mom's account. Well, she, no, she did. So what happened was she posted a post about a political thing that was going on. And I like corrected her. I was like, oh, this actually isn't true. This is actually what happened. And she's like, no. And then she like sent me a video, a TikTok Mm -hmm. of what supposedly is proof when Wait, was just... it a random person no talking it about was it? or was it a... no 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 but the, the tiktok she sent you yeah it was like a random person made a video of their opinion of something yeah and i was like you can't get your political information from tiktok that's not a good source and that's not <laughs> really like source. a good fight to put up and just be like here's a tiktok video of them saying this one that's thing. proof yeah and i was like I can Google it right now and have many websites that are saying the exact opposite of what you said. Yeah. So I don't know. It just, I feel like a lot of people just say it to get into arguments, but. Is it like a cool thing to be fighting for your political belief right now? I don't think so. But I have like some people who have flags in their room or posters or things on their cars and just seems a little bit. So your brother, so my son, who is um, also a teenager, but younger than Anna, he was very indignant one day because he said that on his remote learning class, there was a, a student who had a lot of political paraphernalia behind them. And they were clearly like sitting in their room and there was all this, you know, content. And he was like, I don't think, you know, that should be allowed. And he was very like disapproving of it. And I was like, buddy, you're wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, like in your video. How are you any different? He's like, oh, I didn't think of it like that. You know, like to him, it seemed so offensive that somebody would have all of this other stuff. But then he felt like completely okay with wearing his Black Lives Matter shirt. And he's like got several of them. And and so, but when I was pointing out, like, you kind of can't have different rules. What you've said, like, has really triggered something in my head. Because if I just asked some of my classmates who have come up to me and said this quote-unquote fact. Yeah. And be like, oh, so why exactly are you saying this? Just ask them exactly, like, why are they saying this, what they got it from, what they heard it from. Like, why it matters. Yeah, and some people, like, I can imagine their parents saying that and then just repeating it. But there are things that you say because yeah. I say it. You yeah. know, like, it's it's the part of the culture of our home. Yeah, definitely. But it's just, do you need to know what you're saying, too? Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Hey, listeners. I just wanted to take a minute to tell you about a private Facebook group that I just created. It's called Adolescence, a Parent's Guide, a support group for high school parents. Parents or caregivers of high schoolers or soon-to-be high schoolers are encouraged to join. We'll be sharing educational resources, supporting each other as we survive the roller coaster of parenting a high schooler, and offering a shoulder to cry on when it all gets too stressful. Search for us on Facebook to listen, learn, and join the discussion. Anna, could I ask you a question? When your friends do that, they engage in this political speech on social media, and they seem to get kind of over the top on it. How does that make your friends and you feel? Does it make you feel like you want to engage with them or you just want to stay as far away as possible? I just kind of like roll my eyes. and I don't think their opinion really matters, especially because we're not even old enough to vote. So it doesn't really matter at this point. Well, that's not true, though. Because you're shaping your opinions, like how you're raised, That's the, true. you know what I mean? The viewpoints you have, like things that, for example, somebody who votes for a policy that leans kind of racist or disenfranchises a minority population, like that doesn't just pick up two months before the That's election. True. That's something mm-hmm. that oftentimes is really 
inundated in the culture within that home. I did have one of my friends, they like posted something and I just like texted him. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is clearly not okay. And then he was like, what? What do you mean? And I was like, you know what? I, I just can't even get into it with you. I just. So you I, stepped away yeah, from that conversation. Yeah, I was just like, you know what? This, it's not even worth it. Anna, one of the things I found in the research for my book was that sometimes that what I'll call over-the-top political language, it causes those that are more moderate in their positions to withdraw. They feel that they can't get into that debate because they're afraid they're going to get attacked or they're going to be made fun of or anything else like that. So I think one of the things we have to be really careful about is making sure that even if we have very strong opinions, is that we present those in a way and that we handle challenges and say, you know, like your friend that was stating a position and you said, well, I'm not sure that's quite true. I don't think the facts back that up. The right response or the better response, I think, might have been to say, well, what are those facts? Let's get those facts together and let's have a conversation about it because maybe the truth is somewhere in between or it's on one side or the other, but we're not going to get there unless we have the facts. I think one of the things we have to start getting to is getting the facts and being comfortable presenting our facts and challenging people that just make statements that don't have facts attached to them because I think our goals should all be the same. Don't we all want to get to the truth? Yeah, definitely. So how do you figure out the difference between facts and opinions? Yeah, here's one of the ways I think you can find out about uh, distinguished facts. And you identified one of them already, Anna, which is generally when people present facts, you present some type of citation or reference to back up that particular fact. And I think that's the number one thing. So I try to, and you will you saw probably in the book, I had a lot of endnotes at the back for any of the factual assertions. I wanted to make sure that people could say, yeah, this is why he's stating this fact. It really is backed up. And I think that's one of the things we can do is be ready to support those facts like that. The second thing I think you can do is you can look at a statement and say, um, and there's some in indications in that statement as to whether or not it's opinion, which expresses a belief rather than a statement of fact. So for example, and this is probably one of the best ways to figure out opinion versus fact. And I know some of our very senior national leaders have the tendency of using this word a lot when presenting factual statements is the word I. When you start something with saying I, and it's usually followed with believe, think, whatever, what's going to follow after that is an opinion. It's not a, a fact. And so I think when we rely on, uh, we mix it up and we make things that are statements of opinion, things with I, people say, all these different things I've heard, those things are really not facts. Those are more opinions. So that's an easy way. And generally, um, like I was saying before, I think when you state a fact, it's generally pretty neutral and it uses a lot of verbs and nouns. When you state an opinion, particularly an emotionally charged one, it's got a lot of adjectives and adverbs and probably some language that, you know, is not really nice. And so you can say that's probably an opinion too. Oh, wow. Yeah little kids like they do that those activities in younger grades where the teacher will say teddy bears are cute versus a brown bear is a type of bear mm -hmm. and so like one is an opinion not everybody believes teddy bears are cute mm -hmm. and the other one is a fact there is a type of bear objectively that is called a brown Same. bear and so they will put kids through those exercises do you remember those types yeah, of assignments definitely. i feel like that's a unit that elementary school teachers will do with kids and then they kind of get to a point or far enough through school where those conversations aren't continuing. I hear grown adults all the time report some random person's opinion as fact. And so I feel like I'm constantly asking, well, who said that? Yeah. Why did they say it? What's the rationale behind it? And that type of prompting can get pretty exhausting people can feel a little defensive when you don't just take whatever they're saying. Where do you think I, teens should get their information about the election or what sources should they use? Yeah, I think there are some relatively good sources that are less biased. And some I like, I like NPR, 
Now, it's not as flashy or glitzy, but they generally have pretty good information and they have a good internet site as well. If you want some more in-depth information about a particular topic, I love ProPublica, which is a relatively new news source. So for example, today or overnight, they published an article about what really happened in the Kenosha riots. And it went through and it was very detailed and very factual and did an in-depth analysis of all the people there. And it came to the conclusion, led you from the facts that they presented to you, that it wasn't what it was represented to be, that these were individuals that had their own issues, they weren't really aligned with these other groups that just got in this situation and it wasn't done very well. And so it, I think those type of things are really good. And the other thing is go on allsides.com and you can look at the sources that really better align. If you're gonna look at the national news media like the Fox News, MSNBC and CNN, look at them, but look at all of them so that you can see how is the same story being presented so you can then see a couple things. One, what are the common things that they all agree on? Okay, that probably is true. And here are the things they don't agree on. That's the part I need to maybe go look and see what what's there. And then I have another question I always ask, and, and I think your uh, your mom mentioned it before, which is, what is their reason for presenting it in this way? Do they have another motive? And I think that's really, really important. And, and I think if there were one other one is, and this is unfortunate because I see this happening more and more or the intensity of it more and more. People make such outrageous statements and you know when you hear it, this is so outrageous. And yet, we don't react to it maybe in, to challenge it enough. And then the same person tested out by making an even more outrageous statement. And at some point, and there's a, I think there's a, a theory about this that says that if you're going to tell a lie, tell a big lie, because people will tend to believe it must be true because who would tell a big lie like that unless it were true? And I think that's one of the things we've got to watch out for, those big lies. I mean, that's something that is really a struggle right now in our political discourse is feeling like the statements that are made are fact-checked, but not only fact-checked, but fact-checked appropriately, you know, because it's like, well, who's doing the fact-checking now? Like, what's their motivation when it comes exactly. to their decision-making about whether or not this is a fact? You know, what sources are they using to fact-check? And so, you know, watching the presidential debates, as you mentioned, you know, there was aspects of it that was just kind of horrifying to watch as they were interrupting and just this whole dominating whose voice can be louder and all of that. And then there's these things, whether it's on Twitter or on, you know, different internet sources, okay, let's fact-check these things. And listening to the differences between what's presented on these major news sources and really hearing a different story. And I agree with you. I mean, I think it's the responsible thing to do to look at multiple sources out there. So I'm a big fan of NPR for sure, but it is easier to access in the car, I find. Yes. And so, and then when you're in the house and the TV's on and you flip around to these different channels or you look on the internet, and then I feel like what I really struggle with is the comments because I can say, okay, well, I'm going to go to this other news source and kind of see what they're saying. And then I always make the mistake of reading the comments. And then I feel so disengaged with that population. It seems extreme and belittling. And then that just makes me like want to go into shutdown mode because it makes me feel very despairing. I think that's right. And, you know, I use an example in the book of a news article I just randomly picked the day I wrote that section. And it was about something relatively non-controversial. And then I scrolled down to the comments. And just on the first page, I found such dehumanizing, inappropriate, vulgar comments about the story that was really not that big a deal or not that controversial. And so I think one of the things about comments in particular, and it's my viewpoint, so if it's helpful for others, they can use it. If not, they can discard it because it's just my opinion. But I tend to tune out the comments now because as I've continued to look at them and research it for the book and otherwise, I tend to believe that the comments, they're, they're not representative of the majority of Americans and they're designed to further polarize 
and silence us. And so I tend to tune those out. And I think they're designed basically to be say, this is our opinion, very strong. Don't you dare get into this or we're going to attack you just like we attack the other people that disagree with us on this comment stream. And then they're just so numerous and extreme that we begin to think, well, this must be how everyone thinks. I don't think that way. Maybe I just need to be quiet and stay in my own lane. And I think that's not appropriate to make sure we have a more productive political discourse. So I tend now to ignore the comments because I think they're designed very deliberately to do that. And um, I think it's very unfortunate because there's no screening of those. Yeah, if, if people said this on television, they'd be bleeped. Uh, but they can say it on the internet and they can even threaten death to people. And I don't understand why we allow that in a civil democratic society to occur, because I do think it silences free speech from, uh, from others. I had an incident, and this was probably at least a year ago now, and um, there was an article and it was talking about white privilege. And so I made some sort of comment about it, basically saying like, oh, I appreciate this. This made me think it was acknowledging the existence of white privilege. I mean, I was like jumped on by all these people saying, you know, like just really racist things. And then this one person, they went to my professional Facebook page, my business, and they wrote a review that said that children should not be in my care. And obviously oh my, my entire business is based on you know, having relationships with children and families. It was really upsetting to sit there and have this comment that went from acknowledging that white privilege exists to being told that I'm unfit to be around children and to have it be on my public page that I felt could impact my professional reputation. And this was a stranger. I have no relationship with this person. And so that definitely made me reevaluate what types of things I commented on because I was like, gosh, you know, with me having I'm out there. I'm, you know, I have a podcast. I've written books. I have, you know, web pages and I guest on podcasts and all these things. Like, you know, people can find me pretty easily. And, Absolutely. you know, my professional reputation can be impacted. And to have it impacted by some random guy that I've never had any communication with, didn't live anywhere in my area of the country, was I honestly kind of frightening to me. And, it, it is. And it's inappropriate. Yeah. And I think we have to get away from that. You can disagree with somebody without wishing them professional or personal death, but we seem to do that. I, I had remarked the other day that, you know, I find it just terribly disheartening that someone like Dr. Fauci, who is just expressing a medical opinion, gets death threats to the point that he and his family now have to have security. I think, oh my gosh, what is wrong with this? But I know it exists. And it exists to silence people. And quite frankly, it's one of the reasons I waited to write the book until after I was retired and didn't have an association as the leader of any company, because I know what happens just like you described, Tara. They will come after the company you work for and everything else. And I didn't want that to disadvantage the, uh, the employees at the company or the company itself. And so I waited because at this point, you know, you can take me on. I've had death threats before from when I worked in government. So I, I know how this works and I, I can handle it. Not that it's right, but I certainly don't want those things to affect the livelihood for, of my family. And I don't want it to affect those employees that I've had the pleasure and privilege to work for through my career. Yeah. And you talked a bit about the accountability piece in the media. And you you said, you know, with the internet being so accessible to everyone, content has to be pushed out immediately when there's breaking news, and it's the quality control is poor. And you mentioned in your book how important it is to hold all publishers accountable. And all of us are publishers in our own way right. whenever we put a blog post out there or we do an yeah. interview or something and that we should be held to certain standards. And while I agree with you, I'm like, gosh, how would someone keep up with that? How would someone keep up right. with, you know, to, to help people uphold the standard if we're not having major news sources be accountable for those types of things? And with a click of a button, you know, it's out there. It's out there. You know, it's one of the disadvantages of technology, but also I'm hopeful. I'm generally an optimist. 
And I would say, I think, you know, technology can always be used for bad, but I think it can be used for good. And we've got a lot of very smart people in our technology companies. And I think there is a way that as we have this volume of information, we can uh, better evaluate it and screen it, not to screen out opposing point of views, but to make sure we have respectful and appropriate point of views. And also that if we have a resource that repeatedly is providing poor information or invalid information, hurtful and harmful information and, and untruthful information, that that source just no longer is allowed on that particular uh, communication medium. There's nothing that requires a non-governmental actor to to allow that communication. And even a governmental actor can restrict communication to avoid those that threaten physical violence that use inappropriate uh, language and, and other actionable things. But we seem to have, and I don't know if it's because the economics, because more eyeballs and clicks means more money to the companies that host these things. But regardless, we all have responsibilities to each other and as citizens and, and as Americans to make sure that we're improving our society and improving our country and not making it worse. One of the things you also talked about in your book is keeping in mind like our common purpose, our common goals, you know, what points we have like a shared stake in or, or compatible value. So you talked about having a common purpose and that there's common principles that we all ascribe to. And so you noted some of them, of course, which are stated in the Constitution, you know, equality, right to life, liberty, things like that. And I was reading that. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. But then when I was like, wait, do I really believe in my heart of hearts that all of us truly want equality, for example? Like, I feel like there's a portion of our population that is pretty comfortable with things like racism, the pipeline of black kids to jail, some of the things you noted as being common principles, like I feel like I have a sense of skepticism that we do have those common principles. And I can't decide if if that makes me particularly cynical. I think we do. I think we do. So even on equality, I think most people believe that all people should be treated equal. I think they do believe that. Now, where it drops off, is instead of starting with a common principle about that and discussing what does it mean to be equal, mm -hmm. we drop down to our position. And that's where we always, and I put this out in the book, is we start, we've got the cart before the horse. Let's figure out what we're trying to achieve first, what that means for all segments of our population, before we start dropping down to a position like there shouldn't be affirmative action or we should defund the police or whatever. We drop down to those positions before we have a chance to figure out, wait a minute, what are we really going after? And surprisingly, in looking at surveys that have been done where they poll people on different things, there is, and it's not unanimous, it's 75 to 80%, but that's a good majority that basically can get around a lot of these principles, even though they may not be aligned on the specific position. So I think there is hope. I, I hope so. And I think that my mindset is influenced by this particular moment in time, you know, seeing that presidential debate, the death of a Supreme Court justice, seeing what the commentary is about our president experiencing COVID. And, and you know, there's people who are sympathetic and understand the good of the country is not protected when we have a president who is passed away due to COVID or things like that. And you see the hateful things that people say and not really recognizing the bigger picture of humanity and our world as we know it. And so that made me pause when I read your book. You know, I was like, gosh, this is, I feel like a sticking point for me. So I'm too young to vote in 2020, but I'll be able to vote in 2024. What is the best way that I can prepare myself to be an informed voter when I vote in 2024? Yeah, I think the first thing, Anna, is to continue to keep up to speed on things that are going on politically in our, our nation, but also in your state and in your county and, and, and city. I think that's really important. You know, I think to be an informed citizen and an informed voter is, I think, very, very important. 
I think the second thing, and I'm not putting these in any order of importance, is don't give up hope. And particularly don't give up hope in us adults. I know that sometimes we're not behaving very appropriately right now, but I trust that we're going to come through this with help of all our generations, including your generation. So just kind of keep that in mind too. And I think be curious. Don't just accept things as they are. And if you don't think something is right, ask about it. And then the other thing is voting is one part of our civic responsibility, but it's not the only part. I think we need to make sure that we look for ways, even if we're not eligible to vote, that we can make a positive influence on our communities, our governments, and our societies. And so there's a lot of ways that folks that are younger than the voting age can do that. And so I would encourage you to do that too. Things in your school, things in your community, even, you know, as we know from people around the world, even people that are not yet voting ages can have a huge impact on global issues. So I would say that. And then I would say very tactically, in addition to voting, one of the things you can do before you're voting eligible is to sign up to be a poll worker. That's going to be particularly important as we need to have more polls open and available to allow people to exercise their right to vote safely. And hopefully we're going to have more people, all of us, hopefully, that are eligible to vote to vote. And I believe in most states here in Illinois, I know you can do that when you're as young as 16. So look for ways like that, that you can discharge your civic responsibility. And then I would say this to any age group, but to you as well and your age group as well, set a good example for the rest of us. And I think that's something we should always strive to do no matter what. I think that's helpful advice. Yeah. I do think, too, is is kids recognizing the role that media plays on their opinions and how they communicate with others. And I'm going to give you like a a personal example. So embarrassing. So I'd like to think of myself as being an intellectual. Oh, I know. Are you calling out the big secret? This is a huge secret. So I listened to this podcast and two of the Kardashians sisters were on the podcast. And I never tolerated any viewing of any of their material. But they sounded intelligent. They had something to say. So then I went down this whole spiral. Oh, my God. I cannot believe I'm con- confessing this I right cannot, now. You barely. Like, I can't even confess- control myself. Yeah. Oh my so I started watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Okay. <laughs> like, it, yeah. So I'm watching it. And I start using the terminology they use. And they're very aggressive with each other. They're very playful siblings. They like smack each other a lot. They jump on each other a lot. So I was watching an episode with my son. And while I'm watching it, I'm like bugging him. I'm like poking at him. Like, and I was just like, I'm a grown up with a fully formed brain. And this TV show is impacting how I'm interacting. And it was all good fun because I still am a grown up who has decency. But I thought, if I'm doing this, I can't even imagine the impact that it's having on, on our youth who are inundated. But even look, now you like you're realizing it. Like imagine people who don't realize it. I know. Exactly. But exactly. I'm like I take this little portion of my day, I watch a couple episodes, I talk to you about it in a very mm-hmm. confessional <laughs> way. You know? So funny. Yeah. But I think about the kids who just see content after content that it's where kids are being spiteful to each other. They're using aggression. They're making poor choices with substances. Um, the language that they use, mm. that whether or not they're divisive I or mean, open to even, diversity. Not even just what they're watching, but people doing that just in high school. Like I can definitely experience that from firsthand experience. Like yeah. people who do drugs a whole bunch in their school are going to be more likely to do them because they see a whole bunch of people do them. Like, yeah. We're really influenced. My point is we're so influenced, influenced. all the time. And um, our family just watched the Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. Mm-hmm. And it talks about the influence that technology, artificial intelligence, social media Absolutely. have on our mindset and how we really a good portion of our time are sort of being brainwashed by the content that we're exposed to kardashians Kardashians, right (laughs) like bible (laughs) um but so you know and i just think of like these kids out there who don't have the maturity you know their brain development is is different than an adult person's plus they don't have the knowledge about how these media sources actually 
consciously go about influencing us. So when we're talking about sort of advice and perspective of what to tell teens, like that's a message I have. Absolutely. I think that's right. And I think what you demonstrated in that, and no, it's not embarrassing, is um, that you you recognize what it was doing and you reflected about it and you had a discussion about it. I think that's the one thing that maybe we could all do. And it's not a panacea, it's not the perfect solution, but maybe a little bit less on technology and a little bit more talking to each other in person or over the phone in, in the COVID situation where we're getting viewpoints from people that we respect and that will tell us off when we say something or do something wrong. I think that's really important and not to get everything from one source being social media or infotainment. I think that's really important. And then just to be aware when we're making changes and hopefully have a group of people around us that love us, respect us, and that we're, we love and respect too, that when we do something that kind of deviates from what our values are, they say, hey, did you realize that? Did you realize how that might make me feel? And maybe can we have a conversation about it? And I think that's the, if there's one theme of the book, let's all have a conversation about these difficult topics that we're facing, particularly political topics. And let's try to find some common ground. Yeah. Well, the holidays are coming up and we all know that's a really appropriate time to have highly charged political conversations. <laughs> Hopefully this book will help people find a better path and to have holiday dinners with less indigestion. Well, at least the election will be over by then. So hopefully we'll also know the winner, you know, whatever the news is, and be able to be like productive citizens. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Ed, I, I can't say enough about how excited I was to have this interview. I've been yeah. talking about it for a couple of weeks now. It was great. Yeah. And I just want to repeat the name of your book. It's called We the People, Restoring Civility, Sanity, and Unifying Solutions to U.S. Politics. I got it off of Amazon, so I know that it can be found there. And you're the author, H. Edward Wynn. And so I really encourage folks out there to get a copy and look through it for ideas as far as how to support your kids on being really responsible citizens who are ready to be productive members of society and how you as parents can communicate about these things, not only with your children, but of course, your friends and neighbors too. Mm -hmm. And if anybody has any questions, please reach out to us here at drterryegan.com and I can make sure to get those questions to Ed and Excellent. you know we can continue the conversation. Excellent. Well, thank you, Tara and Anna. It's been a very interesting and very enjoyable conversation. Thank you again. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. We release new episodes every Wednesday, and we have some fantastic episodes coming up. Yeah. Thank you for listening, and make sure to share this episode with a friend and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. I love you, Mom. I love you too, sweetie. Hey, listeners. Please join our free parenting webinar series. It's offered each Monday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please visit www.drterryegan.com to register via Zoom. Each webinar will offer a 15 to 20 minute presentation hosted by me, followed by a 30 minute question and answer session. If you can't join us live, you'll be sent the recording directly to your email so you can watch it later at your convenience. Join our Facebook page at Dr. Tara Egan to get details about topics we'll be discussing in upcoming webinars. This is my chance to meet you, so please register today.